0: The first thing I do when uh, my first lecture, I always start the same. I start by saying entrepreneurship sucks. <laughs> and then I wait silently and people start looking at each other like, whoa, <laughs> what are we doing here? And then I follow by, unless you have the right frame of mind.
1: Welcome to the MindTech podcast, where we dive deep into the unsolved problems in mental health with the people building technology to solve them, including founders, investors, and experts in technology for the mind. I'm Manu, your host, and I am delighted to introduce today's guest, Michelle Birnbaum, the co-founder and CEO of MindScience Health, a platform that assesses brain health with two AI-enabled products, Neurobrowser, which automatically interprets EEGs for the brain, and GenMind, which monitors mental health from smartphone data. Ultimately, MindScience Health supports clinicians to make more informed decisions and measures progress with functional outcomes. I've had the privilege of being an advisor to MindScience Health over the past couple of years, and it has been an honour to contribute to such a technologically advanced product that improves access to care and quality of care. Michelle has developed the Lab-to-Market Curriculum at the Singapore MIT Alliance for Research and Technology Center. And in this podcast, he explains these principles and how he has implemented them at Mind Science Health. Let's get into it. Welcome, Michelle, and thank you for joining all the way from Singapore, where, of course, Mind Science Health is based. How is everything over there?
0: Good. Thank you very much for having me. I look forward to the interesting discussion.
1: Of course, yes. Before we dive into that interesting discussion, all the problems that mind science is working to solve. Um, I, I just want to start with what initially inspired this journey of yours. I've uh, had to recap on your variety of experiences in your wonderful career. And just to list a few of the roles that you've had, you've worked as an engineer at General Electric, as a director in investment banking and life sciences, as the CEO of a VC firm listed on the London Stock Exchange all across US, Europe, and Asia. And now you're the CEO of Mind Science Health in Singapore. So, um, can you take us back to the beginning, connecting the dots, hmm. looking backwards, and uh, explain all the milestones that led you here?
0: I think it's always been about, uh, I've always been interested in building things, right? Even uh, when I worked for G. Uh, I worked on the military side and the military engine group, but it was on on new projects. You know the Apache, the Black Hawk, helicopter, where I worked on the power plant side of the of those machines. But it was always about building new things or being innovative, and uh, and I think that as my as the my career pro- progressed, I think it's it was building things, but trying to be impactful in those things as well. Yeah. Uh, and then I had the good fortune of almost falling into life science. I mean, I'm an aerospace engineer by training, right? Uh, but I had the good fortune of being surrounded and mentored by uh, some great people that kind of tugged me along. And uh, eventually, that's what you know I decided to do uh, on a full-time basis, is work on, on various life science projects. So also work on, on a new class of antibiotics as well. Um, and, um, and obviously mind science, which is about brain health and trying to impact, uh, people with epilepsy, serious mental illnesses and, uh, and trying to use technology to do that. Hmm.
1: Yeah. I think the passion for leveraging technology to build products that do good with good people, that is the through line through it all really, but gradually healthcare emerged as more of a space that you wanted to occupy, and then specifically within healthcare, mental health. Mental so, health, yeah. what what led you to mental health?
2: Well, you know, as an entrepreneur, and most entrepreneurs have uh, some mental
0: health issues because it's a pretty lonely journey uh, that you have to that you have to go through, and uh, and also, you know relatives, uh, people close to me that have, men- had, have had mental health issues. And it's always been kind of, okay, people have mental health issues until I started looking at, you know, what would eventually become mind science and seeing the potential that was uh, being developed by the, by the team and my co-founder, uh, Dr. Justin Dowles, who was working actually on epilepsy at the time. We're starting to develop other types of uh, technologies, including verbal and nonverbal technologies. And the way this could be applied to monitoring people and, and trying to not cure, but, but at least being able to provide information to the care providers, all right? So the healthcare providers, so they could have additional information to improve outcomes. And what we do is we do remote monitoring. So not in the doctor's office, but once the patient leaves the office, and that's one of the big issues is what happens to my patient once that patient leaves the office, and um, so the ability to to be able to monitor these these people remotely, kind of, we try to provide a continuum of care. Uh, everybody knows there's information out there, but nobody is able to capture it properly, and that's what we try to do, and hopefully. By doing this, we we provide additional information to to improve outcomes over time, over time.
2: Hmm.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I can't wait to delve into the details of Mind Science Health. But before we go into that, can you take us back to the day that you met Justin, your fellow co-founder, and share the spark that initiated Mind Science Health?
0: So I was. Would... I was on the VC side before uh, getting on the university side, uh, the academic side. And uh, so one of the first projects, basically when, when the the university hired me, they said, you know, this is your hunting ground. Go go and get them. And, uh, so one of the first projects was uh, actually uh, Justin's project. And actually I got to know is, his students that were working with him on on that project, and uh,
2: and eventually got really
0: interested in what they were doing, and I could see the potential, especially after I started talking with the clinicians, were you know, neurologists, mental health providers, etc., and seeing that there was a need for something like this. Obviously, it needed development, validation, et cetera, which you know has taken us on a very long journey to be able to do that, but. You could see the potential and uh and also the the enthusiasm with which the the, the team was going at it and including justin everybody was really focused on, on trying to develop a product or something that would be impactful and uh and I, I decided to to you know to latch onto that project and eventually i became the ceo and uh Worked with, with the team, hired some new team members, and, and uh, we've been on the, on this product development journey across two segments, which are separate but really related, right? Uh, one is uh, EEG, and uh, the other one being uh, obviously mental health. Uh, hmm. But those two are related. Uh, because, for example, epilepsy is not a neurological disorder, but a neuropsychiatric disorder, right? With underlying... Potential underlying comorbidities and mental health, uh, so, yeah, so that's what I uh, need to, to work on this, and uh, that's what gets me up in the morning right I'm one of those people that need something to get up in the morning it's not mm. to, the, to the chagrin of my wife it's not money that drives me <laughs>
2: it's
0: it's more passion and trying to to be impactful and uh, and you need that fire in the belly. I mean when I teach entrepreneurship. One of the first thing I, I tell the, my students, and those students are young and old, right? People that want to know what this entrepreneurship about, is the fact that it cannot be money that drives you because eventually that loses its shine, right? Especially as you go through the throes of entrepreneurship, you need, it's got to be something else. And, uh, and it, it's not being Mark Zuckerberg because Zuckerberg is all the way up there, right? And you're starting down here. And before you get there, a lot of things are going to happen. And, um, uh, so it's gotta be something that gives you fire in the belly. And for me, this is, this is what it is. Uh, it's trying to be impactful, trying to help people, uh, through the use of technology and then working obviously with clinicians. Uh, everything we do is with clinicians. Uh, we don't sit in our, in a corner and develop things. We talk mm-hmm. to them see you know what are the needs what are the gaps you know how do you want to see things uh do you want to see them presented to you etc and then we then we go back in our corner and start working on that it's always with the, that
2: continuous feedback loop
1: yep yeah. wonderful very evidence-based and iterative yeah. Yeah. so your initial path in vc led you towards um i mean in terms of building technology, uh, then took you to universities where you were really, um, you know, seeing the research that was leading to tech- technology spinoffs. Um, and it was really that fire in the belly that made you feel that being a co-founder, CEO, and entrepreneur would be the most fulfilling thing. Yeah. Um, having experienced how you can make an impact in each of those ways it's really you know leading from the front as an entrepreneur that is most fulfilling to you and yeah. that's that's wonderful to hear um so for everyone listening what is mind science health
0: so mind science health is a, is a platform um uh, to start off with uh, it's a platform for brain health okay so we do two things on that platform. The first one, which is the more mature part of the platform, is we do EEG analysis. Okay. Um, so we capture data that comes from various pieces of hardware in a, in a hospital, either in a hospital or in, in a doctor's office. We capture that data. We process that data in a, on a cloud-based platform and then serve it back to the, the end user who's actually the clinician. Uh, or the neurologist or you know whoever needs to look at an energy result and uh, and we we do that automatically Uh, right now there's no real automated software if you talk to neurologists there's some very nice softwares out there you know with all the bells and the whistles but not necessarily automated and uh, so we do the detection of seizures spikes which are the way I explain what spikes are is if seizure is an earthquake, the spikes are the aftershocks. And, mm-hmm. uh, and the spikes are very transient in nature. They are uh, in the milliseconds, right? And it's and down. So they're very tough to detect. But from a, from a treatment point of view, if you're being treated already for seizures and the a spike shows up, that means you've had a seizure. You don't know when. You don't necessarily know where. But you know there's been a seizure and that means that maybe there's a need to you know modify the treatment because you're still having seizures and and we do slowing so slowing shows up in concussions uh, brain encephalopathy again it's not something that's very um precise but it tells you something is happening in the brain that's creating slowing of of your brain wave um, more slowing than than should be because as you age your brain, you know, some of your background waveforms slow down, et cetera, so you do get slowing. So that's the, the the first thing that we do. And then, actually, what happened is we were approached by one of the institutes that wanted to know if we could tell anything on mental health with EEG. And actually, unless there's some real structural deficits, you can't really tell that much, right? Uh, well, at least at that time. And... Uh, but we had like i said before we we're starting to develop verbal non-verbal algorithms etc and we said well you know we could try this you know micro expression uh the visual part of the things and lo and behold you know for schizophrenia patients, we could actually look at negative symptoms which are the really really the debilitating symptoms for for these patients and cognitive impairments and uh, so there there are there are three basic, uh, as you know, there are three basic symptoms for serious mental illness across a number of indications. It's the psychosis or positive symptoms, right? Uh, so I hear things, I see things, et cetera. Negative symptoms, which is um, blunted effects, So you have no issue, no emotion, no enjoyment. Allogia, which is poverty of speech, et cetera. And then the cognitive impairment. And usually negative symptoms and cognitive impairment are comorbid to each other. but. Whereas with psychosis there are it's druggable, there are treatments out there, not necessarily great treatments because of the side effects, but there are tre- there are treatment antipsychotics, et cetera. whereas for negative symptoms there aren't right it's basically talk therapy, uh, cognitive behavior therapy, rapid eye movement therapy, et cetera so that's what that's what we and it 's difficult to monitor uh, because you have to monitor across a set of symptoms right. Uh, and a lot of those are overlapping. For example, you know, in schizophrenia and major depressive disorder, there's a lot of overlap, right? Between those symptoms and as well as other other indications. So what we do is we look at the trends of those symptoms and uh, and basically capture that information outside, right? We don't need to be in the in the doctor's office because people like you, they can tell, they can make a diagnosis, et cetera, You know. With the blink of an eye. There's no why should I, you know, insert myself in that? Where we are is where you cannot be, is once the patient leaves the office. And unless that patient gives you calls you or their caregiver calls you, you don't know what's happening until the next time, hopefully they come for the next session and then you know they'll they'll tell you. So here we capture that information and provide it on provide that information on Two different sets of dashboards. One is for the patient, where we provide quite a bit of information to basically understand what the brain, what the mental status of that patient is for that specific day, for example. And uh, so we record the patient using a very simple instrument. It's called a mobile phone, right? (laughs) And, uh, And we ask for your consent. We don't need to record you all day long. We just need to record 30 minutes, 40 minutes of conversation at you know, various times of the day. And uh, and in between, we add some complementary data through what's called EMA, Ecological Momentary Assessment, which are phenotyping type of, digital phenotyping type of questions. And if you do not consent to be recorded, then we ask you a bit more questions just to get an understanding of where you were at and etc. And that includes also some about suicidal thoughts, uh, more in terms of uh, so wellness checks, right? Uh, then we we try to provide actions, and we've developed all this with uh, clinicians, right? Therapists, psychiatrists, psychologists, on a pretty global basis to to make sure that we captured any cultural bias that there might be, etc. Uh, there's still some cultural bias, but you know, for example, now we're we're bringing this to the US. The first thing that we're going to do is we're going to check our uh, algorithms, which have been developed in Asia against a U.S. cohort and make sure we have the right weightage, and if we don't, then we adjust that to take to take into account some of that bias, language bias, uh, cultural bias, uh, biases, etc. So hmm. long answer to, to your short question. So
1: <laughs> no, that's um, an excellent overview. With NeuroBrowser to start with, which was the first brainchild of uh, Mind Science Health, um, creating this software that's able to assess and interpret um, EEGs saves clinicians a whole lot of time, right? A lot of time. Yeah, um, a lot of time. So yeah. uh, the uh, neurologist may take an hour to an hour and a half to manually annotate a 24 hour EEG reading. Um, whereas neurobrowser can annotate eeg readings for clinical markers of neurological disorders with accuracy that does not fade with human fatigue in just six to ten minutes
0: and even less even less well wow, yeah,
1: even less. really yeah. what's the yeah. what's the figure now
0: well it, okay so it depends if we use uh, no it depends on the compute right if we start mm. using gpus then it's almost 10 times faster But uh, from a startup point of view, at this point, it's, you know, there's a cost to using GPUs on on a continuous basis. So, but over time, obviously, you know, if we start um, transferring all this to GPUs, it goes a lot faster. One thing that I want to state also is the fact that we're not better than the neurologist. We're not better Mm. than the EEG technician. Okay. What we do is we take what's a tedious amount of work off the mm-hmm. table. So the so either the, the neurologist or the EEG tech can, can see more patients, right? And and uh, and monitor, are able to monitor more patients. The hospital can process more patients, but also and whether that's uh, that's uh, important being able to do continuous EEG. And continuous EEG, like you said, are you know EEGs are long term uh, you have extended EEG, which are three hours or more, and then you have the continuous EEGs, which could be twenty four hours forty eight hours ninety six hours or even more, and that's a lot of data right for 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 a clinician to be able to uh, to uh, process and annotate uh, so there are, there are things that are done to try to speed up the process, but obviously to do that you miss a lot of data a lot of information. We're able to do the entire trace. And mm. like you said, in about five to seven minutes, uh, depend again, it depends on the complexity of the trace, if there's a lot of uh, of abnormal waves and then or backgrounds, et cetera. But uh, yeah, it's a productivity tool, just like, you know, yep. just like GenMind is, it's a productivity tool as well. Uh, yep. It's the ability to monitor patients more efficiently and, and hopefully at the end, it's, it's to have better outcomes.
1: Yeah, saving clinicians time and resources Enables them to focus on the delivery of quality care, um, developing yeah. a strong therapeutic alliance, whilst optimising costs. And of course, NeuroBrowser um, is a product that is more for neurology, and mm-hmm. here we may be more interested in GenMind, which is more for mental health rather than neurology, and. The uh, remote monitoring and assessment software that you use um, to improve access to care and empower that patient doctor relationship, extending far beyond the confines of a consultation, but continuously via the smartphone, it has the same outcome, really, of being able to um, facilitate better care and better relationships. So the technology that you employ to capture and analyze the digital biomarkers um, that you briefly touched on. There are a variety of these technologies, speech and signal processing, natural language processing, facial expression analysis and body gesture analysis. So how have the these been um, progressing in terms of your technology? Has this been something that is continually um, advancing and what unique value does this combination of these different types of technology provide to the users of GenMind? Mm.
0: So, I mean, we like, like you said, uh, we do facial analysis, more gesture analysis. Actually, we've developed a, a, a kind of a skeleton or avatar uh,
2: measures, um,
0: certain body movement, angular momentum, uh, certain indications of certain uh, uh, markers of uh, of motion. But from the problem with that, okay, is from a privacy point. Uh, so we mostly use the verbal, non-verbal algorithms. Um, the facial and, and body motions, depending on the indication, may just add, the, you know, a couple of percentage of, uh, of points of of accuracy, which you know, in the big scheme of thing, doesn't doesn't matter that much. And if it's to protect the privacy of the patient, then we don't use it. I mean, obviously, we deal with high risk individual, right? So we're always careful in the way we capture the data, the, the way we collect capture the data, the way we process that data, the way we store it eventually for for processing, and then the way we we get rid of that data, okay? And actually we've been certified by the and IEEE we're the first company to have been certified for the AI quality assessment framework, which means that the way we our cybersecurity is the way we do the whole data lifecycle management is we meet all the various qualifications the, the ISO uh, standards etc and that was a lot of work Uh, that was about three years worth of work to get to that point Uh, it was important to do because we need to demonstrate uh, to both clinicians and patients that you know we care about the data that we collect and we care about their privacy and uh, and their well-being as well right because privacy also goes with the with well-being so we use the verbal nonverbal and we use a lot of different variables features etc we analyze a lot of uh, various uh, markers uh, using various combinations of algorithms and we also use standard statistical analysis okay it's not all ai or learning there's also very good tools in in, in standard uh, classical statistical analysis that we use and uh, and those tools enable us to basically analyze and look at the trends of those uh, various negative symptoms framework right because uh, those negative symptoms they fall into certain framework like anhedonia, logia a motivation etc blunted effect and uh, there's five of those that we look at and uh, and through those, like I said before, we have the patient dashboard, so we provide in a easy to understand way uh the information we show what happens when you do certain things to try to at least move the behavior more towards where we we would like it to, to go uh, for therapeutic effect and then for the phys- for the clinician because the clinician doesn't want to be inundated with tons of um, information etc we show it in a summary fashion and uh, if the the he or she decides to go more into the detail, then they can use, start using the scale that they've been trained on, et cetera. We don't really use the scale. It's based on scales, what we look at, but we don't use specific scales per se. We look at that, those frameworks. And, uh, and say, for example, you know, a logia is getting worse for this patient or there's some cognitive impairment that's getting worse. Up to you, clinician, to decide whether you should intervene or not or, or at least know not, not that for your next session so we mm. leave it we leave quite a bit of that of the the decision making process to the to the individuals and the way so we're, we're a decision support tool we mm. provide information to make which decisions can be made or at least part of the decision process can be made
1: yeah providing information that the clinicians need but difficult for them to capture and yeah. have the time to analyze um facilitating that decision making yeah. process it's fascinating to me that mind science has the capacity to y- use something like facial expression analysis and body gesture analysis alongside their verbal and nonverbal um processing but you've decided just because we can do it doesn't mean that we should do it because we also <laughs> You know, it it, it conflicts with our uh, value of patient data, privacy and security. I think a lot of people who can do something as sophisticated as, you know, judging the mental state of someone from using a, you know, a computer that analyzes your facial expression and body gestures, it would be very tempting to find a way to squeeze that in and make that work, right? Um, Did you find that quite... Difficult to let go of, or, or did it seem quite, um, quite an easy decision because that patient safety is so at the forefront of your mind?
0: I mean, obviously, there's uh, <laughs> we're torn, right, uh, mm. by the, the the beautiful science, right, and the technology and the and potential innovation, and the need of the patient and the need of the of the clinician, and uh, so when you try to remove yourself a bit from that. And uh, then, like you said, it comes back to values right why Why are we doing this for? Is it for beautiful to you know show the world that we can do beautiful technology, beautiful science, or is it to be impactful and, and try to improve things right?
2: Uh,
0: in the end, it's obviously because we want to be impactful, and we want to try to improve the life of, of these patients and uh, so then the decision becomes a lot easier although you mm. know you're still mm, <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're torn but uh but hey there's some point where we might be able to use it for example if somebody says you know we'd like to monitor you know in a big ward patients uh then we could use it because in a hospital you know the notion of privacy is, becomes different right uh, as opposed to an individual that's out in the communities uh, with the notion, there's a different notion of privacy. But if it's in a, in a hospital or in a, in a psych uh, intensive care unit, we could, you know, we could use it. Uh, at this point, we would have to do some a bit more development on it, obviously, because we've been concentrating on the verbal and non-verbal part. But it's yeah, it, it we haven't thrown it away. It's still there. But like mm-hmm. I said, it it doesn't add that much accuracy to the yeah. to, to the overall. Um, uh, accuracy of the information that we provide right uh, so that was also something to, to take into account when deciding to kind of put that on the on the shelf
1: of course yeah well it's sitting on the shelf ready for when the market is ready and um i'm sure it will have this value one day but for now it's good to hear that just the verbal and non-verbal um processing in real time is enough to Have a very high standard of accuracy and that being taken continuously opens the opportunity up for being able to predict deteriorations and identify when patients are at high risk of course for um, maybe harming themselves so is this something that you have considered Making a use case and and how how would GenMind play a role there?
2: So in, in yeah, in terms of uh, so I guess coming back to accuracy. Uh, so as you know, the inter agreement in, in psychiatry psychology is uh,
0: is pretty low, right? And the reason for that is is just like uh, for each interpretation analysis, there's a certain amount of subjectivity, right? Uh, analyzing the data. And there's also a lot of overlapping symptoms. Uh, and the patient usually is not purely a schizophrenia patient. There's some comorbidities that are there. Uh, just like bipolar patient, there might be some psychotic comorbidities that are in the bipolar patient. So there's a lot of you know uh, overlapping symptoms. So what we try to do is take a bit of that subjectivity out because obviously, the algorithms are trained on data that's been collected across a lot of different uh, uh, clinician and patient cohorts. So by doing that, we're not necessarily better than a single psychiatrist, but you know we're as good as a, co- a cohort, right?
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: uh, so that's important to 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 keep in mind. Same thing with EEG. We're not better. We're as good. And that's all. I I don't want to be better. I want to be as good. Because, again, what we're trying to do is we're trying to provide additional information. I'm not here to compete against the skill set and the years and years of experience of a clinician looking at patients on a daily basis. I'm not there to do that. I'm there to, to provide additional information that's not necessarily there or information that's tedious to, to collect, et cetera. So that's I think it's important to to. um to state that because a lot of time when people think, oh, you're using uh, AI or deep technology, et cetera, algorithms, you got to be better than the than the doctors. No, I don't have to be better than that because the doctors are providing me with all that, with that, those annotations that I train mm-hmm. my, right, my algorithms on. So at this point in time, I'm not better. And we're not at the point where the AI becomes completely intelligent and goes on is, on its own and starts developing its own training data, right? We're not there. Uh, so that's, that's important to, to state from a use case point of view. So what we were, so all this was developed with actual patients, uh, our algorithms. Um, we had the good fortune of working with uh, one of the institutions in Singapore that deals with mental health and uh, with schizophrenia patients, with depression patients. And we have healthy patients. So those were developed with actual patients, not looking at papers, et cetera, uh, trying to see what, you know, what potential markers were there. And now, like I said, we're moving that to a much bigger patient court uh, outside of Singapore. Uh, and the use case is what's, what has become the metric now in serious mental illness is, how do we mitigate negative symptoms, cognitive impairment to improve functional outcomes? Because that's what's important right can we Mm. improve the way the patient functions can that and depending on where that patient is on the spectrum can that patient become productive can that patient you know hold a job or can that patient socialize and go out etc so those that's what we're looking at from a use case point of view more like an objective um an objective to strive for is by being able to monitor negative symptoms cognitive impairment are we able to improve functional outcomes you know the function the function of the patient and that's the that's you know the that's the end result that we're looking for and that clinicians are looking for now it's not about you know can you lower the, the percentage of that specific symptoms by uh, you know this much etc it's not about that anymore it's about by being able to monitor those symptoms intervene on those symptoms can you improve the the functional outcome of the patient and that's you know that's what we're working on
1: and how do you measure these functional outcomes
0: I leave it up to you guys you tell me <laughs> how it, it's measured and uh, and that's what we're doing you know there are a number of scales out there to do that uh, there are a number of uh, ways to assess that uh, but it's all contingent on looking at you know certain uh, symptoms depending on the indication that drive uh, towards the improvement of the of the functional outcomes. And uh, it's like in schizophrenia, there are a lot of scales, depression, there are a lot of scales. And, you know, coming back to the beginnings, when I started looking at this, I was like, we can't develop algorithms for each of those scales, otherwise, you know, we'll still be in the lab by the time we're 100 years old. So it was, you know, how do we assess this? And, uh, and same thing with functional outcomes. How do we assess the the, what are the measures that we can use to see if what we do uh, along with, alongside with clinicians can improve outcomes. And it's not about completely, you know, 100% uh, improvement, even 10, 15% improvements. I think, and, I mean, you tell me, but, you know, from talking with various clinicians, 10 to 15% improvements make a big difference
2: uh, in patients, especially when they're, they're out in the community. So that's what we're striving for
1: absolutely yeah um and i guess working so closely with clinicians like myself um really guides the product development and making sure it's clinically valid um i understand that also other types of partnerships are key to your success so what what kind of partnerships have you established and how are you leveraging these
0: so we're we're um... So as a, as opposed to EEG, which is uh, is very different, trying to get data for mental health is a lot tougher, right? Uh, because again, you're dealing with the patient that uh, are high risk, but also, you know, my brainwaves, your brainwaves, somebody in China, somebody in Africa, it's the same, right? Mental health is different. There are there are cultural biases, there are national differences, etc. And uh, so. We need to be able to port what we do all the time in e e g what works in singapore will work in in the netherlands will work in the u s right because it's it's the same brainwave uh, there's no difference in brainwave there's no there's no cultural bias to a brain to to a, an EEG analysis whereas in mental health there is an actually a strong bias there's even there's a language bias as well right uh the way somebody Users' language to express themselves can change from one ethnicity to another within the same country, and we need to be able to assess that because one of the things when we we're talking with some of the agencies in the in the u s to to develop and port our our software there is the fact that certain ethnicities are not well served with these types of algorithms and one of the things that uh, we intend to work on and we started doing that is how do we Mitigate that, right? So that those various ethnicities can benefit from from the work we're doing, and and obviously, and it's so that comes back to health inequity, right? Health inequity, uh, trying to provide access to care. Uh, if you look at the U.S., for example, over one hundred forty million people do not have access to a, to a psychiatrist. You know what they call psychiatric deserts, right? Fifty uh, percent of the counties don't have a psychiatrist within a hundred miles which is quite a big distance, right? Uh, So they lack access to care. So hopefully by providing at least remote monitoring
2: uh,
0: and working with some of these other companies that provide therapists or, or, you know, that put you in touch with the various uh, mental health providers, hopefully we can provide a better access or an improved access, not better access, an improved access. And that's mm. also part of why we're doing this, right? And it comes back to the impact. Uh, and again, if we can, it, small improvements make a big difference, in in uh, especially in mental health, right? Small improvements make a big difference, yeah.
1: Yeah, especially when that improvement is just access. You know, People yeah. need the care and they would benefit from the care that already exists. You don't even have to improve that. You just need to facilitate accessing it, yeah. Yeah. Um, really unlocking a whole wealth of support for them so Mm. definitely the uh, potential to access these people in the most remote parts of the world um, by only needing your smartphone of course uh, you know to start with it will be very much clinician led and uh, guided but uh, the potential is there for sure with um, very very remote um, places in the world remote monitoring can help overcome these barriers to access, of yeah. course.
0: I mean, there's, there's a lot of uh, uh, apps out there that, I mean, not, not that many people monitor the negative symptoms because it's it's, uh, it's a bit challenging to do that. But there are plenty of uh, apps out there that uh, are not clinically validated. That's a lot of them actually. And from the get-go, we wanted, we wanted clinician to validate the work that we're, that we're doing. Because again, we're dealing with serious mental illness. We're not dealing with people that have a bit of anxiety, a bit of stress. Not that there's no place for that. there is there is place for those types of, uh for those types of, uh, of products. But we're dealing with a different set of, of people. People that have serious yeah. mental illness, uh, that, are, that are diagnosed, that are really under care. Although there's only fifty percent of people that are diagnosed that are really under care, and by being clinically validated. We have a lot of papers out there, including one that appeared in November of last year, 2022 in Nature, uh, Schizophrenia, which was uh, for us, you know, the reward of all the the years spent on developing this. Mm. Uh, It was important to be clinically validated so that eventually we can move upstream. So just like in diabetes, for example, there may be people may be at risk of developing diabetes, type two diabetes, because their the way you know their behavior or maybe it's family history genetics etc. Same thing is true for serious mental health uh, uh, diseases. So maybe, uh, there may be some family history, there may be some genetics etc. Or so an accident that is triggering something in the in your brain that makes you develop comorbidities. So the ability to move upstream and monitor, and for those people to monitor themselves, they may not be on the on the care, but they want to monitor themselves. And, and as you know, a lot of times, about seventy percent of the time, negative symptoms present before a full episode of psychosis and mm-hmm. negative symptoms. Right. So if we can catch that, just like pre-diabetes, we can catch it before a patient or a potential patient tips over. And it's a big help for the system, for the payer, for the provider, and obviously for the patient's quality of, of life. So so the clinical validation is very important. A lot more work, a lot more money to be spent, etc. But it's it's important if you have a long term vision. If you have a short term hmm. vision, then you don't do it. You just go out there in the market
2: and then uh, hope that people start using it. But we have a different a different vision for this product.
1: Hmm. Yeah now i can i can see that you're choosing the right way rather than the easy way which uh i think has been you know failing to do that has been the demise of a lot of mental health technology startups of late um and it may be why the journey has been more painstaking than what you would have yeah. liked but for uh, sure it you know yeah. it will it will stand the test of time when um when push does come to shove so that's wonderful to hear. I wonder, in your, um, you know, when you developed the lab to market curriculum as a visiting lecturer at the Singapore MIT Alliance for Research and Technology Center, um, you you will have had to have advised students and um, uh, you know executives who were students in that room um, how to keep that long term strategy whilst also Wanting to penetrate the market as efficiently as possible, so can you give some insight into yeah. those principles and perhaps how you've implemented those principles in Mind Science Health to transition um, from lab to market in mm. a successful way?
0: So the, the the first thing I do when uh, my first lecture, I always start the same. I start by saying entrepreneurship sucks. <laughs> And then I wait silently and people start looking at each other like, whoa, what what are we doing here? And then I follow by, unless you have the right frame of mind, not Mm. everybody can be an entrepreneur. I mean, it's, it's risky. The chances of success are not great. Right. Uh, It's a long journey. You've read it before. It's not uh, inventing anything, but it's about the journey. It's again, Mm. the fire in the belly. You have a vision, you see something that needs uh, improvement in the market, or there's a gap that you feel you can fill, uh, because you have a piece of technology, you have a piece of science, so whatever, and it can't be the money. So, when I, when my first lesson is always about that, to to try to give people, you know, a pragmatic understanding of what entrepreneurship is about, right? Because one of the, one of my pet peeves is the fact that people glamorize entrepreneurship. It's not glamorous. You know, there's nothing. It's like the restaurant business. My father was in the restaurant business. Nothing glamorous about the restaurant business. It's a long, tedious hours of uh, but something. You know, my my father was passionate about food and 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 feeding people, and so it's the same thing here. It's, it comes back to the fire in the belly, right? And right. and then you have to. So, how do you take a, a, an idea from uh, from the lab to the market? There's a lot of different things and it's a continuum, right? Uh, One thing that's important to understand is it's it's not discrete steps along the way, right? It's a continuum. Uh, You Start with, you know, you have a nice piece of science. You have to build a technology from that science. You have to have some funding to be able to get that along, right? And there's different feeders all along that continuum. Eventually you get to institutional investors, which are the VCs, right? Or the high net worth individual or family offices they have institution, basically built an institution around the, their fortune to be able to have a, a, a steady process in how to do things uh, i p strategy if it's i p you know how do you develop an i p strategy because that's a, another thing that I, I tell people ideas are great, but you know they're a dime a there are a dime a dozen look around the room. You're PhD, postdocs, masters, you're all educated, intelligent people. You don't have monopoly on the ideas, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It's the execution. How do you execute, right? And, uh, you know, you, you can make a, a so-so idea into a great product, right? Uh, by having a great execution, but, uh, you know, a great idea with a so-so execution can be completely go down the drain. It's about the mm-hmm. execution, and uh, and and there's no real recipe, right? There's, there's frameworks of things, right? You have to think about your IP. You have to think depending if it's hardware. You have to design, you know, the way you design your product for manufacturing has to be so that it's, you know, you can manufacture it and it's not going to cost you hundreds of thousands to manufacture one unit, right? So the unit price of that product is important. Uh, so there's a lot of things that come into play, and obviously. One person doesn't have all the, the those skill sets, so you start building your team, depending on the product, and you start to to try to bring those uh, those skill sets in. Either they either come in as advisors, or you know they come in as as part of the team, you
2: know, inherently part of
0: the, the product building team, uh, and that's how you do it. And um, but the funding is, you know, the funding is the gas, right? You can build mm. the best car, but it's not going to go anywhere if there's no gas in the car, right? Mm-hmm. You can build the engine; you may have all the skill set, unless you put gas in it. It stands still; it doesn't go anywhere. And it's the same thing here. You need to have that uh, that ability to get people to to see what you're trying to do, you know, to invest. And that's not it's not so easy in the, especially in stuff that's really med- medical. Uh, and then for us, we have the, the the misfortune of being tagged as digital, right? So, and people's notion of digital is, oh, digital, easy stuff, right? You no know, algorithms, blah, blah, blah. And then when I start saying, uh, we need regulatory, we need to be approved, you know, CIM, uh-huh. ISO 13485, FDA 510K, they're like, but you're digital, yeah, but it's medical, you know. We still uh-huh. have to have some regulatory oversight. Because we're dealing with patients now you know, in in, in you know, clinical environments, etc. So, so the 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 fundraising part is, is really the, the tough part, and, uh, and those go in cycles. So right now we're in a pretty bad cycle uh, for mm-hmm. investing in life science, biotech, etc. Uh, especially medical uh, stuff. Some of the other lighter digital uh, health tech is getting funded um but the 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 real medical stuff is uh is having difficulty as always.
2: so
1: yeah well uh passing those passing through those regulatory loops and hoops and hurdles they i'm sure will you know make all the difference when it comes to yes um yeah. whether an investor v c decides to invest because it goes from you know something that has. An amber light to something that has a green light. So all the work that you're currently doing in the regulatory side of things, um, it really will unlock a lot. I think, particularly yeah. when you're dealing with such vulnerable patients at risk. Um, so, Absolutely. yeah, it's it's, it, yeah. It, it's interesting. I um I sense from the way you speak about practicalities and limitations and being efficient, um, the inner engineer coming out in you. And I wonder how useful. Is your background in aerospace engineering, how useful is that in the work that you do today? It's funny you
0: said that because one of the things that I like to do is uh, mentor young people or sit down with them. Uh, and yesterday I did that for two hours with actually a mate of mine that I went to business school with. His son was uh, coming through Singapore and he said, No, know, can you meet with him and, and just have a chit chat. And we we're talking about that. and. Uh, the fact, so he's is uh, is non-technical in uh, this person, you know, in this field of study, and I told him take a few technical courses because it will help you. For me, for sure, I mean, going from aerospace engineering to life sciences, uh, doing drug discovery, drug de- delivery, med tech. The training I had as an engineer was very helpful to be able to grab things, you know, grab concept. Uh, some of them abstract com- concept. I think the, the the engineering training, thinking in logical steps and going through ideas uh, in logical steps fashion to try to understand it um, and being always curious. That's the other important thing. That's what I was telling this, uh, this young man y- last, yesterday is I'm an old guy, but I still spend thirty five percent of my time learning new things, otherwise, I become irrelevant really quickly right uh, because technology science is moving so fast these days, you know so fast if you want to be stay relevant and keep doing what you're doing, you need to constantly learn right otherwise mm-hmm. you fall quickly by the wayside so yeah definitely thirty five percent of my time at least is is spent on on doing that and uh and it's important also for for example the work i do in mind science the abreast uh, of you know all the new stuff that's coming up large language models for example we're going to start incorporating that uh, obviously you know my co-founder justin works on that but me from my point of view i need to understand that as well how do i incorporate that into our product how do how does, do I incorporate so it makes the product better, not just for the sake of saying, Hey, we have LLM in our product, you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. It's got to have some functionality that improves the product uh, and that serves the product uh, and that keeps that product to pushing the envelope as technology evolves. So yeah, I think it's very important to have that curiosity and also that uh, thirst for learning mm-hmm. and I think that's what engineering or science training does for you it makes you and obviously the reason you go into science or or engineering is because you know you like to learn things complex things right uh or more challenging things and um so for me it's uh, i mean i love this job people go so when are you going to retire i go i'll retire when i'm like this (laughs) you know i'll never retire i don't know what to do with myself uh it's it's yeah, and working with young people—that's that's, you know even better. I mean, the average age of uh, Mind Science, the
2: team in Mind Science, is uh, you know early thirties, right? Um, so it's it's fantastic to be able to work with young people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I can tell yeah. your tenacity and your um, energy is still as as youthful as I'm sure it's always been. Um, there's a, a long, long way before you would ever have to think about retiring, which is um, great news for us all. Um, But one part of that youthful spirit is, as you said, the constant journey of learning and discovery that is inherent in both engineering, science, and, of course, now, for you, entrepreneurship. (laughs) So what are you learning about these days?
0: So, like I said, large language models. When I started, actually, when I started the working uh with algorithms, et etc, I took a course in Stanford on machine learning because I didn't want to look like a fool hmm. so i took i, I mean and the uh, the learning curve was quite steep, I have to say um, but it also means that you know I'm not the expert, I'm never the expert right but uh, I know enough that I can see if there's come you know potential for, for something, right? A, a piece of science, a piece of technology, uh, uh, et cetera. And uh, so I, I know how to surround myself with people that are a lot smarter than me. Uh, and my job is to make everybody work in the same direction towards a, a similar set of objectives, right? Uh, and that's important. That's important to be to be able to do that and motivate people. Uh, obviously, the startup journey is difficult. There's a lot of frustrations. So. To, Keeping a team motivated is uh, an important part of, of doing things, and I can see sometimes the team is frustrated. You no, know, we 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 put in proposals for projects, we don't get them. When we, you know, everybody says, "Uh, oh, there's no problem, you're gonna get it," and all of a sudden we don't get it. You know, it's a big letdown, and uh, we got to keep, you know, re motivating ourselves for. And the reason why we're doing this and again it comes back fire in the belly, you know, doing the, the impactful thing, et cetera. Uh, but in, in terms of what am I learning is actually one of the things I'm learning is because I've been managing people. I've been in entrepreneurship quite a, a, a while is my style of management has had to change yeah. uh, because the way I managed people 10, 15 years ago is very different than the way I manage people now. Because people, the younger generation, have different set of uh, expectations from a, a job uh, or a career, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and my job is to, you know, show them uh, one the career path, uh, keep them challenged with the work that we do. And if I can't do that, then I lose them, and you know, and I don't blame them. You know, they go somewhere yeah. with uh, you know. And the other thing is being able to balance, you know the the work life work life balance right I think a work life balance that's, that's very important uh, mm-hmm. for the younger people more so than for example my generation I mean we work sixteen hour days no problem right
2: uh, mm-hmm. there
0: has to be a work life balance and and I can understand that and you know if I had to do it again I probably would change it as well but back then that's the way it was right. You work on hours, mm-hmm. et cetera so that's that's something important that i have had to to not to learn but to adapt right yeah adapt uh, because adapting is also part of you know learning right you adapt to different things and and different challenges et cetera in terms of uh, actual learning like i said i'm always learning i'm I'm always curious about uh, things sometimes things that have nothing to do with what I should be doing right. Just because I'm interested, somewhere it will pop up or or color, you know, my understanding of something or my decision on something. So my father used to always tell me, "There's no stupid job, only stupid people." Any <laughs> every job you can learn something from every job. Uh, yeah, there's no stupid job. Uh, every you can grasp something from from every job, and that's something that. Uh, yeah i've taken you know i've done a lot of different things like you said at the, at the beginning and every one of those things that i've done have you know led me to where i am now and i continue to learn it's important uh you know otherwise
2: uh you know life is boring
1: yeah definitely yeah. not just in every job but in every experience there is something exactly. yeah. there it's just up to you to to find it and to um turn it into something that works for you rather than against Absolutely. you. Absolutely, yeah. So. And like, you
0: know, you can learn from young people, old people, yep. you know. There's, there's some people that I deal with uh, they are in the 80s. They're in their 80s, right? And sometimes I think to myself, oh my God, I hope my brain keeps boiling like theirs. I mm. mean, they still have ideas that are coming out, etc. It has nothing to do with age. I think it has to do with, you know, your your the way you look at things, the way you look at life and not... Saying, oh, I'm that age, that's it, you know, and start letting yourself go. No, you just gotta keep Mm. driving, driving. And like I said, you know, some people in their 80s, I'm like, my God, how do they come up with this stuff? Right. And uh, so it's, you can learn from anybody, anybody.
1: Well, it's fantastic that you can work with both a 20 year old and an 80 year old um, with the same sense of respect and um, equal footing. And uh, I'm sure that's that's what's led to you um, working well in in all the teams that you have worked in, and mm. especially the one that you're leading now, the Mind Science Health.
0: Respect is, uh, I mean, you, you hit on the word respect. When, Very important. Respect. Yeah. The word respect. Respect goes both ways, right? You have to Definitely. respect the, in the. Yeah. Important respect and integrity. Those
1: mm-hmm.
2: are two important things. Yeah
1: well i'm i'm sure all those those values um they come through in the product if they are you know embedded within the culture of the team making mm-hmm. that product so um it will manifest in in ways that aren't just good for the health of the team but also for the patients that you end up impacting as well so i hope so just <laughs> yeah yeah no i i hope so too um just to you know, wind things down. Then I, I just have one final question for you, um, which is in keeping with the theme we've gradually moved towards, which is uh, you know a little bit more about um, taking care of people, uh, taking care of yourself, and thinking about your lifestyle as well as work. So my question to you is, Michelle, w- what do you do to take care of your your own mental health?
2: I mean, I have bouts sometimes, and really. Sometimes pretty, I wouldn't say severe, but, you know,
0: impactful. Battles. So, you know, I try to do meditation as much as possible. I try to do it every day. Exercise. Exercise is very mm. important
2: uh, to me. Uh, swimming, uh, going to the gym, uh, and music. In My youth, I used to play in bands. Uh, mm. So, that's, music has always been
0: one thing that I wish I could do I, I just don't have the time uh, at all is painting I used to paint mm-hmm. uh, so things like again it comes back to creative things right yeah. um, um, creating things uh, I like to create things for example at one point I was a pastry chef again wow. it's cre- it's creating right you're creating yeah. food and uh, to this day I still do it uh, although not as much as I
2: would like to with
0: hmm. all those things are outlets that, uh, are kind of not completely off kilter, but are somewhat relevant to, to what I do because the thread is always this creative, innovative, you know, trying to, to come up with new stuff, et cetera. Uh, but meditation and I would say meditation, exercising and, um, uh, is important on the on the day on a day to day basis. The other yeah. stuff is when I can find the time, uh, but, you know, meditation and exercising are important. And also spending time with uh, my best friend, which is my wife. Mm. Um, we still yeah, have, uh, you know, after all these these years, we still crack each other up a lot of <laughs> times, and that helps. Especially during COVID in Singapore, it was mm. it was uh, a bit tough. Uh, Strict. Yeah, very strict. Remember at the beginning, I was like, "Ooh, shit, we're gonna be the two of us uh, between four walls." Mm. But actually, it was fantastic, I tell you. Yeah, Uh, and we kind of relearned how to communicate, relearned to enjoy each other, do things.
2: Uh, That's been very helpful, and to kind of reinvigorate the relationship. So. For me,
0: COVID had a kind of a silver lining. Although, from a from a company point of view, from a mindset point of view, it was two and a half years of you know mm-hmm. the, uh, being in in the in the basement for all intents and purposes, because that's the time when we spun out. Right? The time we spun out, we couldn't go anywhere, we couldn't meet with anybody,
2: and uh, so it was mm-hmm. two and a half years. Really tough, really tough.
0: But, uh, but yeah, coming back, that's that's what I do. It's uh, meditation and exercise to kind of release all that stress and frustration that builds
1: up uh, on a daily basis.
2: Mm. Mm. And I'm
1: sure all, all that meditation and exercise gives you a much sharper focus on what needs to be done at Mind Science Health and keeping you guys on track in your mission, on your pursuit to harnessing the power of advancing technology to ultimately Improve care and outcomes for patients. And it's been wonderful to hear about your journey, all of the ways Mind Science Health uh, is progressing, and the wonderful work that you and your team are doing, um, le- leveraging digital With biomarkers. Yeah, I yeah. no, appreciate that. Um, but yeah, leveraging digital biomarkers is certainly an area that is very exciting right now. And um, mm it's wonderful to hear that it's um, you know it, there are very good people working on that to improve yeah. patient journey and the doctor patient relationship so um, michelle it's been wonderful uh, for everyone Thank listening you very much you are very welcome um, for everyone listening michelle would you like to share anything in particular or perhaps the ways that people can support mind science health if at all
0: yeah, if there's anybody with uh, any funding out there,
2: <laughs>
0: we can we can use the funding. But you know, if people are interested in finding out what we do, please you know get in touch with us, uh, including you know people that would like to test uh, the product uh,
2: yeah.
0: on an individual basis uh, or participate in in, uh, in how the product could, could be better. I mean, we're always takers of, of feedback, obviously. Uh, and then you know, for people that are interested in entrepreneurship, uh, make sure this is something. It's it's almost like you know, I wouldn't. May, it may be a bit pretentious, but it's almost like a calling, right? Uh,
2: mm-hmm. Because
0: you see something out there, and uh, and if you want to do it, then do it, right? Do it, uh because that otherwise that's gonna keep gnawing at you. Right, and, and if you fail, then you fail. No problem, right? Uh, just make sure that you know there's a lot of externalities that are not that are out of your control. It doesn't mean that it's uh, that you didn't do the right things. That your your technology wasn't good. Sometimes, as they say, shit happens, and, mm-hmm. uh, and there's plenty of great technology that's you know is by the by the roadside. Uh, but if you have, you know, if you feel you need to, to fill a gap in the market or you see a, a problem in the market, then go do it, go do it or be part of it. At least if you, if you can't do it yourself, be part of it.
1: Absolutely. I'm sure, um, you know, it leaves, it leads to a very fulfilling life. And the alternative is perhaps mm. a life more unlived, which is a greater risk than the risk that you would take by trying. So, um,
2: Absolutely,
1: yeah. it's, a you know, straight from, from the mouth of, uh, someone who has really, um, lived by, by that advice, Michelle. And, um, it means that much more because of it. So, Michelle, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. And, um,
0: thank you very yeah. much for having me and, uh, for the great questions.
2: Hmm.
0: It was, it was really good. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thank you.
1: Fantastic. Of course. Well, uh, until next time, um, All the best. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed this insightful discussion. If you did, the best way for you to support the Mind Tech Podcast is by sharing this episode with someone, subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing your thoughts in a comment. If you're interested in learning a little more about your mind and how you can get the most from your most powerful resource, you can check out The Mind Explored, an email newsletter I send each week with an insight into your mind and a tool to improve it. You can access all the articles and subscribe at www.mindtechpodcast.com. Thank you for your interest in the mind and how technology can meet its needs. Until next time, goodbye.